Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. Each week, we navigate the most important changes that affect pharmacotherapy. Plus, you can earn pharmacy and medicine CE credit. We know you're busy, so let us bring the learning to you. Click on Claim CE Credit in the show notes below. Now let's welcome your host, Jeff Wall, as he discusses this week's clinical practice game changers. Hello and welcome to Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am Jeff Wall, your host. I'm a professor of pharmacy practice at Drake University. Welcome to the show. Um, We aim to be the show you listen to when you want to get the latest information on pharmacotherapy and and all its kind of surrounding uh, topics. And we do that by really kind of perusing the latest literature, perusing the latest guidelines, latest studies, latest stuff from the FDA, and try to give you, you know, the most important information that you can use, you know, right in the office, right in the pharmacy, you know, the next time you see a patient with that condition. And that's really kind of what we aim to do and give you the the most important information as quickly as we possibly can in an evidence-based manner. For those of you who are new to joining us, thanks for listening. If you're a longtime listener, thanks for keeping listening to us. Big talk today is going to be about uh, something that has dominated the news, at least uh, in in this uh, latter part of June, which of course is the approval by the FDA for uh, COVID vaccinations in uh, patients under age five. Um, And this finally was approved by the FDA and uh, has led to an absolute deluge of of information, both good and bad. And to help me navigate through the good and bad information is my frequent co-pilot and the guy who basically keeps uh, this podcast running, uh, Dr. Jake Galdo. So Jake, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jeff, for having me. Happy to be here. Jake is a community pharmacist, and he also has a lot of other hats that he wears, um, and he's going to give us some really good good perspective uh, from as a parent as well as a pharmacist on, on uh, the issues surrounding this. So again, as, as we know, the COVID pandemic is not over, despite what you may think as you're walking down the street and seeing people basically just com- be completely back to normal. We're still seeing waves of COVID. Now, the good news, and, and I am as a, as, a, as a hospital pharmacist and someone who has, has kind of, you know, dealt with the last two years, I'm happy to see that the good news seems to be that serious illness requiring hospitalization and death is still remaining low, even though we've had several different surges over the last two or three months. That is good news, but but it, it, it does not mean that the pandemic has disappeared. And, and even now, uh, here in late June, uh, CDC recommended, uh, estimates that about 300 people a day still are, are dying of COVID. So um, uh, yes, the numbers are remaining low. Yes, that's good to hear. Um, but we don't know what new mutations are going to bring in the, in the, in the future because of all those things, you know, the, you know, thinking about vaccines is still very, very important. And so, you know, when uh, FDA approved both the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines for, for children, the f- first question was, uh, you know, you know, what's the data surrounding this? How safe is it? Do we really even need to give vaccines to children? And, and certainly if you look at the, at the, at the lay media and, and, and social media, there seems to be a lot of tug of war about this. And of course, the reason surrounding this, I think, is is kind of a fundamental misconception that, you know, well, kids hardly ever even get sick from COVID. So why would I vaccinate, vaccinate them against against it? Well, I mean, kids hardly ever get sick again against influenza, yet we seem to vaccinate them against that most times. So, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure if that, if that logic kind of plays out. Um, a lot of the information we're going to be talking about, I do want to give credit where credit's due, is primarily due to a terrific blog, not just for COVID, but for a lot of other things uh, by, that's 
titled Your Local Epidemiologist. Um, it is a really, really uh, good blog that is written by Caitlin Jettelina. Um, she is an MPH and a, and a PhD epidemiologist. And her blog, as you might imagine, in the last couple of years has, has been a go-to thing for a lot of people, both healthcare professionals and non-health professionals about COVID-19. That's not all she talks about, but uh, she did a tremendous job, I think, breaking down in her blog uh, um, the information surrounding this. And so I definitely want to give credit where credit's due about the information we're going to talking about. And she points out, and, and I agree with this in my own research, that yes, while, well, you know, the overall number of patients uh, who are or zero to four years who have died from COVID has, main, has been relatively low. Yeah, at uh, Right now, CDC is recommending about 450 children have died from COVID-19 since the beginning of the pandemic. And you may say, there's a lot, hardly anything. There's millions of kids, you know. Remember that, that, that that's a flawed comparison because kids um, from many infectious diseases don't die as often as adults. That's true for the flu. It's true for other things as well. And when you actually take a look at deaths per year and kind of take a look at other uh, vaccinated diseases that we look at, and I think the biggest comparison is influenza. It's worth noting that in the last two years, COVID has been a leading cause of death of children age zero to four in the last two years. Now, yes, the overall number is relatively low, 450 out of millions of kids, but it's still one of the highest uh, uh, causes of death in, in those children. And the numbers are, are, are higher than influenza for the last two years. You know, again, we, I, I don't think there's always, there's been a, a lot of, of hue and cry about, about getting children vaccinated against the flu every, every year. We certainly seem to do that in most cases with little or, or no problem. And then this is, you know, and COVID-19 is, is, is much higher than that. So um, in, in, of particular note is that during the Omicron wave, uh, children under five actually had the highest rate of hospitalizations compared to all other pediatric groups. And uh, one in four of the children who were hospitalized ended up in, in, the, in the intensive care unit. So, you know, for all those reasons, you know, the, I think the false equivalence that, oh, well, you know, kids hardly ever die from this. So, you know, why, you know, why, you know, why should I vaccinate them? Well, you know, kids hardly ever die from, from other vaccine preventable diseases. That means we don't stop vaccinating children. So that, that's something to kind of keep in mind that, you know, you have to really kind of compare apples to apples here. And, and, and it's not, it's inherently unfair to compare the death rates in children to the death rates of say people over age 75, because it's just in, in general, people over age 75 other have many other comorbidities. They're just more likely to die of a lot of other issues. Right. So that's, I think that's the first thing. And then even if you kind of take that out of the equation and say, well, I don't, you know, okay, I don't believe you. I don't care about those numbers. Remember that severe disease isn't the only outcome of COVID in children. We do know that long COVID does seem to occur in children. And the data is pretty clear now that vaccines seem to reduce the burden of long COVID by various numbers, but up to 50%. It, it can be life-threatening, but it, is, it usually requires hospitalization is, is the MISC, so the, that the um, inflammatory syndrome, the multiple inflammatory syndrome in children that has been well reported in patients with, with, with COVID. We know that vaccination prevents against that as well. So again, yes, most children don't die from, from MISC. In fact, most people do fine with it, but it often does require steroids. It often does require hospitalization. So again, being vaccinated is, is, is going to protect against that. Although it's somewhat, although a little bit controversial, we know that on the whole, vaccines do reduce transmission. And this is not true you know, just of COVID. This is true of, of all vaccines. Vaccines tend to reduce transmission of infection. And so even if you want, it wanted to say, well, you know, I, I'm not doing this for, for me, 
but maybe consider doing for the child's grandparents or great grandparents or relative or friend who is immunocompromised who if they develop COVID, it may not be so benign. And so again, we know that vaccines do decrease transmission. Again, the exact percentage of the, of the transmission is still up in the air a little bit. And I, and I, and I agree with that. But uh, it's certainly, uh, while not perfect, definitely going to be an added lever, layer of protection, especially as the world seems to decide that we don't need to do social distancing and masking anymore. We're kind of stopping all the other non-pharmacologic ways we can kind of prevent the spread, the spread of COVID. So for all those reasons, I think, you know, the question is, you know, if the question is, should I get my child zero to four vaccinated? I think in, in most cases, the answer should be yes, because again, A, we have, uh, we know the death rate of COVID is higher than other vaccine preventable diseases that we vaccinate kids with in most cases without blinking twice to that it, that it decreases the risk of long COVID and other, while not life-threatening, other issues that surrounded COVID. And three, although the exact number is not known, we know it decreases the, the transmissibility of COVID. So those are all, all the numbers. Now, the next question that often gets asked is, well, you know, my kid just had COVID, you know, so why should I get them vaccinated? And, you know, again, we really don't understand, and, and, and there's a lot of research going on, knowing, knowing about so-called hybrid protection. So people who have been vaccinated, but are also have, have, have gotten the disease, it seems, at least the data to date as of late June 2022, that hybrid immunity, so people who have had vaccines, uh, had had a vaccine and, and been infected or vice versa, does seem to have additive protection and actually quite strong additive protection, uh, probably because you're getting um, activity against both the spike protein as well as the entire virus. And, and that also seems to have uh, not only just antibodies, but keep in mind that, that beyond just antibody production, your body has a, a very robust immune system with T cells and memory B cells, which is how your body is able to, to generate new antibodies against uh, organisms that you've seen in the past. And we know that some recent scientific evidence suggests that, that about a third of children don't make antibodies after, uh, after confirmed infection and don't have very good T cell responses. Um, this is probably directly related to the fact that, again, children tend to have mild disease and the milder the disease uh, you have, that probably leads to, to less, a less powerful immune response, basically. So again, you know, whether your ch child had COVID-19, and you, we're not really sure if they're making antibodies, or they are making antibodies, and you're, you're going to increase the, uh, the chance of them getting hybrid immunity. Either way, it seems reasonable that even if your child has had confirmed COVID, that vaccination is still a good way to go, because that will either help them with their ability to produce antibodies, or it will help with their hybrid immunity, which it seems to be a pretty good way to go. When will the vaccines be available? This will be a little bit different because uh, we have two vaccines coming out at the same time, both, as I said, the Pfizer and the Moderna are both mRNA vaccines. The doses are much different, in fact, much lower, and that may mean that it's going to be very difficult to compare the two because, especially when we talk about side effects and efficacy, because the doses are going to be very different. Um, and so for the Moderna, um, it is currently approved for ages six months to five years. Uh, the, we'll talk about the clinical trial in just a minute, but in the study, they had about 6,000 thousand patients of about 4,000 were ages two to five, about 2,500 were ages six months to 23 months. Um, and there was two doses of only 25 micrograms of, of the vaccine, whereas the Pfizer vaccine is, is approved and, and studied in ages six months to 40 years, not five years, with about 4,500 patients in their study, uh, about 2,700 were ages two to four, about 1,800 were, were ages six to 23 months. And they had three doses, not two. So that's something to kind of dial in when you're thinking about what choice you want to make. And 
and an even much lower dose of the vaccine with at only three micrograms. So there are some differences. Again, you know, I, I, the question that I think I think that that healthcare professionals are inevitably going to be get asked is, well, which vaccine should I choose? And I think just like with other COVID vaccines, any vaccine is better than none. And I think you need to kind of sit and, and, and think about you know which one is going to be best for two, two versus three shots, et cetera, et cetera. When, when we tackle, when we take a look at that. Then uh, another, you know, I think important question to ask is, are the vaccines safe? And, you know, of course, this is the, something where the anti-vaxxers are, are kind of going crazy with. And, and keep in mind that the data we have to date with all the mRNA vaccines is they are incredibly safe. And we've undergone more mass vaccines with the mRNA vaccines in the last three years than any other vaccine in history. And, you know, with almost 1 billion people vaccinated with these vaccines had some massive downturn, you know, to that would have happened or massive side effects I mean, along those lines, we certainly would have seen it by now. So, and ha- does that translate in, into, you know, young children? And the answer seems to be yes. Yeah, for six to 23 year olds, it seems that irritability and drowsiness were the most common side effects both more common with Moderna than Pfizer, but that stands to reason since we're using a slightly higher dose. And for the two to five-year-olds, pain at the injection site was, was pretty common. Again, higher uh, at, with Moderna uh, than Pfizer and then followed by fatigue. As far as fever, and that's something we deal with with, again, all vaccines, about one in four children with Moderna experienced a fever and about one in 20 with the Pfizer vaccine. And again, keep in mind, that's because the Pfizer vaccine is a much lower dose. So, but you also have to take three doses compared to two. Um, certainly, the specter of myocarditis has been raised and has, has again, been a potent tool for people who are not for the vaccine to kind of, you know, tout why it would be a bad idea to get them. No myocarditis cases were reported in either trial. Keep in mind, and, and it is worth noting that neither of these studies were big enough or would have the power to show such a rare side effect. So, I mean, it, you know, again, it doesn't mean that, that there's absolutely no going to be, but we do have data from five to 11 year olds that suggests that there is no myocarditis safety signal. So there's no reason to think that, that in younger children, myocarditis would occur as well. So again, when you get that question about, well, I want to give my kid myocarditis, the data we have to date does, does not suggest there's an increased risk of myocarditis in young, young children. And we'll have to just see as, as more data is followed, basically. Were there any serious side effects? Well, in the Moderna clinical trial, there was one case of febrile seizure and rash, um, but the patient did fine, actually. And in the Pfizer study, one potentially life-threatening adverse effect was reported. Coffee was spilled on a, on a, on a, on a child when they were getting the vaccine and it caused a thermal burn. <laughs> <laughs> which tells you again that I think two things. One, that uh, investigators who do these studies are being extra vigilant, extra cautious, ex- extra rigorous when they're when they're making the reports of adverse drug reactions. And two, you know, it, pointing out the fact that the VAERS program, which is the program that that anybody can use to report at a vaccine-related adverse effect, you can report any vaccine-related adverse effect. So again, you know, there's there's absolutely no causality or correlation in a lot of these reported sites. Side effects. So using VAERS as your only source for vaccine-related side effects is going to be inherently flawed, in my opinion, because, because of that. And then finally, are the vaccines effective? And the answer is yes. Now, again, there's been some controversy about what's the definition of, of effective. Remember, 
that in a disease where you patients are going to get seriously ill, hospitalized, or die, that you would need tens of thousands of, of, of patients to have a statistically significant difference if one existed. So keeping, keeping that in mind, FDA actually required Moderna and Pfizer. So this wasn't FDA, this wasn't Moderna and Pfizer making up the rules as they went along. FDA said, look, uh, to do this study, we want you to do something called immunobridging. And this is a process that compares antibodies among the youngest age group after they're immunized um, so uh, to another age group. And so in this case, they looked at the antibody production in ages 16 to 25 compared to the uh, antibody uh, uh, levels after uh, immunization in the age group that we're studying. And we already know the vaccine works well in 16 to 25 year olds, not only producing antibodies, but also reducing severe illness and death. So we, we just need we need to look at this for both dose, because again, they use different doses, but also to, to look at look at comparable an antibody effectiveness. And so again, remember that before we go into things, because again, there's been a lot of, of controversy and talk, I think, on various media channels about, well, you know, the, you know, they didn't actually show a decrease in, in uh, death, for example. Well, again, to, you know, to show statistically significant uh, number of deaths, you'd have to have, again, you know, a study 10 times the size of the one they had here of four to 6,000 patients, and we'd be waiting for another five years for the study to come out. So, and so FDA knew this and FDA said, you know, no, we're, we're going to do this immunobridging type, type of analysis to see what's going on here. So what did they find? They found um, that Moderna reported uh, a, a, about a 40% efficacy against disease for two to five-year-olds after two doses, and about a 50% efficacy in six to 23-month-old, 23 23 excuse me, after, after two doses. And by efficacy, again, we mean antibody levels that are comparable to 16 to 25-year-olds who are vaccinated as well. Uh, Moderna is, is doing a, another a study with, with a third dose. And so, you know, we, we know already in, in data from adults that it is a three-dose series, right, that, that you get the maximum benefit when you get when you get three COVID-19 mRNA immunizations. And so my guess would be, and, and, and I think a lot of experts in this field are guessing that a third shot will probably be necessary. Pfizer went ahead and go, went ahead and did the three dose uh, uh, comparison, but at again, a much lower uh, uh, dose uh, amount, right? And they reported actually 80.3% efficacy after three doses. But they, they noted that, that in the youngest kids that after dose two, there was very little, if any, protection. And because of that, that, that's why they went to a third dose uh, series. They and experts have kind of said, well, that's because that's one of the reasons why Pfizer didn't have the data for for, for young children this last winter because they didn't find a whole lot of efficacy and they realized it was going to be a three shot series. And so that's you know again basically Moderna has has okay efficacy again when we're talking about antibody production kind of 40 50 percent in young children after two doses. The third dose with Moderna we'll we'll find out pretty soon. With the Pfizer, it is already a three shot course. And after that three shots, the efficacy was again reported to, to be 80%. It is worth noting and epidemiologist who writes the, the, your local epidemiologist blog yeah, points out that she is going to personally pick for Moderna for her children. Uh, she felt that the data for Pfizer's efficacy was less robust than, than the Moderna and had a very wide 95% confidence interval, somewhere between 14 and 81%. And we're not exactly sure, sure kind of where, where to lie. That the antibodies with the Moderna re reached the same levels in half the time compared to the Pfizer, six versus 13 wait, weeks. And that, you know, we're going to have more data with Moderna with the, with the, with the three shot series. So um, again, that doesn't mean that picking Pfizer is wrong or anything along those lines. Uh, it just means that her personal assessment of, of, of the data suggests that, she, that, that Moderna is the way she's going to go. 
again, I would say that's reasonable, but I think it's also, you have to think about two versus three doses. You have to think about the difference in side effects too. And I think at this point, any vaccine is probably better than no vaccine. So I think, I think picking one is, 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 is probably the way to go. Keep in mind also, and this was just reported just a couple of days ago, that Moderna is actually ready to go with an Omicron specific booster of the original vaccine. Uh, so it's not the original one. And I mean, many experts have, have noted that we will probably, at least for the foreseeable future, be getting, you know, yearly kind of boosters um, against COVID as, as they target the different mutants of it. And, and just like we do with the flu, that will probably happen for, for some time. Um, and I was reading actually just this morning that it looks like it looks like as, uh, as soon as they get the approval, they'll be able to roll out an Omicron specific booster this fall. So for those of you who are getting your flu shot every year, you'll probably be getting your flu shot and your COVID-19 shot. I don't know if on the same day, but probably pretty close to each other in the, in, in the fall as you know, we've done with the flu for, for, for many, many years. So other questions that, that you may get, the Europe epidemiologist notes that talks about is, you know, again, uh, you're vaccinated and, and you're breastfeeding, should you delay the vaccine? No, even though antibodies are transferred, transferred through the breast milk, they're less effective against respiratory infections. And so basically you should have your baby get the vaccine, even though you're breastfeeding. Um, same if you're vaccinated while pregnant. Yes, if you're vaccinated while pregnant, you, you will transfer some antibodies. But again, you know, we don't know how uh, long those vaccines will last after the baby's born. So don't wait. And then last, you've got a four-year-old kid who's going to be turning five. Should you wait till they're five and get it or, or go four? Your local immunologist points out that cross that neutralizing antibodies were actually comparable between two and five-year-olds and six to 11-year-olds with the larger dose. So uh, no, you shouldn't wait, basically. So that's, you know, that kind of her summary and, and, and my certain certain review of, of, of the literature certainly seems to, to match that. Uh, several large universities uh, have come up with their own kind of, you know, uh, talking points and guides that you should look at. And uh, the one that I read from Harvard actually does a really good job of, of explaining everything that, that that's really, that we've really just discussed, that on the whole, the vaccines are safe and effective, that each shot has less vaccine in it, but, you know, and that have seemed to be really, really safe. And that, you know, again, you know, this should really kind of just be, I wouldn't say a no brainer. You definitely want to think about you anytime you give, give your children immunizations, you definitely want to think about it. But I think that the evidence suggests that both vaccines are both safe and effective and have real world benefits in children that not only have to do with decreasing uh, um, uh, cases of hospitalization and death, but decreasing the risk of long COVID, decreasing the risk of transmission to other people who may not be as protected, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I think it's a, a good paper and a good review. And again, you can look for those things on the internet. We can actually put a, a note in our, in our show notes too um, as we go along. So that's what we got on this. But you know, that's all kind of like 30,000 foot stuff. What if you're trying to get the vaccine for your child right now? Like the second you're trying to call people. Well, Jake has had some experience with this. And so we're going to hear his story of what's happened so far. And he's a pharmacist and he's had an odyssey trying to do this. So Jake, why don't you run us through kind of what's gone on with you in, in this? Yeah, thanks, Jeff, for having me. And uh, it's it's pretty atrocious. So we'll start with saying that I'm in Alabama, uh, but I have seen news reports out of Wired Magazine, out of Wall Street Journal, all expressing similar difficulties in different parts of the uh, country as well. But I'll give you my, my Alabama story. So, you know, we have a seven-month-old. She's eligible. We want her to get vaccinated. Everything was authorized over the weekend. You know, we did have a federal holiday on Monday with, mm -hmm. with Juneteenth. And so like we can, we can say some providers might not have been open, all that. So let's say Tuesday, let's get started. Um, on Tuesday, because you can go to vaccine.gov and actually see 
uh, vaccine providers in your area. Right. And so on Tuesday, I did that. The closest uh, COVID provider for a six-month-old in my area, and I'm in Birmingham, dead center of the state, was a dentist in Tennessee. So vaccine.gov. Wow. A dentist <laughs> in Tennessee was my closest uh, provider that would vaccinate my child. Uh, so you're going to a different healthcare provider in a different state, and that's that's what I've got. So, okay. so then I said, okay, let's, that's interesting. Let's just call around. <laughs> yep. And I called 10 different pediatrician offices in the greater Birmingham area, and I was stonewalled by all of them. Wow. Nobody knew what was happening. Many of them did not even bother ordering the vaccine. Some of them told me that I could get on a wait list, but only if I transferred my care to their practice. Otherwise, they wouldn't provide me a vaccine. Um, but even if I did that, they couldn't tell me when they were actually going to get the vaccine available. Wow. Then I called three different health departments in three different counties and got mixed messages from them as well. Anywhere from we don't have stock and we don't know what's going on to we have stock. We did get authorization. Well, this ended up being Wednesday. You know, we have stock. We can do it because we have authorization. But by the way, we don't we don't have a protocol and quote, you don't want us killing your baby because we don't know what we're doing. Wow. Uh, and that's a real quote. I had a health department tell me that they were apparently so incompetent <laughs> in administering a vaccine that they would kill my child. Um, and we can yeah. all recognize that vaccines don't kill, right? right. Uh, that's yeah. not something that commonly happens. So, yeah. so we, are, we are struggling here to get patients access to medications. And what's super scary is, is globally speaking, there's this general resistance to vaccinating this age group with COVID. We see it in the state of Florida where they just don't allow purchasing and, and use of the vaccine right. um, to just general vaccine hesitancy and resistance. And so the, the vibe I've been getting was, well, we didn't think that there was going to be a lot of demand, so we haven't bothered with it. Wow. You know, the, the, major, the major health system in our area provides vaccine to a lot of their um, auxiliary clinics. And so I've called a lot of them, and they all said, well, we can't order. The hospital has to order. The hospital hasn't even put in an order yet. Right. The hospital was a site for the clinical trial, but they couldn't order the vaccine. Hmm. Yeah, you know, and, and, and it's a it, hot mess. Yeah, that's a hot mess. I mean, that's I don't know a better term to say that's a, a good way to describe it. And and I again I hasten to point out your you know your healthcare provider. You know the channels to go through. You know to call the public health department. You know to call pediatricians. You know again people who may not have that knowledge. It's just they're going to be completely lost. And and so you know how many people it isn't a question of vaccine hesitancy. It's I gave up. You know, I called right. my law, you know, I, we had talked before, and I mean, another important piece to, to point out is that, that, that children zero to three cannot be vaccinated uh, for anything in pharmacies. So unfortunately, a, a large safety net for a lot of people, because I mean, everyone knows, oh, I get my flu vaccine back at Walgreens every year, or CBS every year, or my local community pharmacy every year, you know, uh, you know, they, that's not going to be an option for their two-year-old, right? And so without that, I'm, I mean, I'm sure someone in healthcare will probably do this study a year from now and, and publish it, but it, it you know, one shudders to think what happens when a, you know, a 
two, you know, a family with two kids. One is, you know, uh, you know, maybe your age or your child's age or a little bit older. They both work full time. They don't have the time to be running around and calling a million people and all this other stuff. And they're going to call their local pharmacy and the pharmacy's like, I'm sorry, your child's too weak. Even if we, you know, we can't do it. We, you know, if we could, we would, but we can't do it by federal law. They call their pediatrician who got, who might get something like you. Well, we don't, we don't have a protocol yet, so we can't help you. They're going to go, well, I guess I, well, I tried, <laughs> you know, right, and, and like they're, healthcare they're, doesn't want me to take, you yeah, know, nobody's yeah, encouraging yeah. this, nobody's supporting this, yeah, you know, so and it's I'm crazy because it's, it's the PREP Act, right? That's what gives authorization to pharmacists and pharmacy technicians and pharmacy students to order, dispense, and administer the COVID vaccine. Right. The PREP Act explicitly says three and older. And so we have this age group of six months to up to three years where they have to go to a pediatrician. They have to go to a public health department. Right. And every single practice that I have called has told me go to a pharmacy. And I've said, that's illegal. Why are you recommending it? And they went, I don't know. And then they like hang up on me. Right. And, I, you know, again, you know, hot mess was your term. I think I, I can't think of a better term, um, you know, to say that, you know, this is going to be one of those keystone cops sort of stuff where we're, you know, you know, the dog is kind of wagging, the, you know, the tail and circling around because you're never going to be able to get a straight answer. It's, it's going to be, you know, the, the it's, everyone's going to be passed in the buck, you know, well, I know we don't do it. So call your pediatrician. You know, we don't even have an order. Call your pharmacy. We can't do it. Call your, you know, and, and, you know, again, your health, you know, very health literate, you know, the system. I shudder to think what's going to happen to parents who just don't have those kind of connections and don't know to call, you know, these different people. So, you know, I, I guess what I would say is, is, you know, what this means is, is for healthcare providers, you know, in your, you know, both social networks and God help me, your real networks, the people you actually see face to face on a daily basis, you know, if they have small children, um, and, you know, and you feel like you have a good relationship with them, it's certainly reasonable to say, once you figured out, you know, where to, where to, to, to get uh, the, the vaccine for, for, uh, for children, I think it's certainly reasonable to be an advocate and say, okay, well, I know you probably called your pediatrician and they said they couldn't do this, but guess what? Uh, here in, in my state of Iowa, the local health department does have some, and they are giving out currently. So I would give them a call because I think a lot of, a lot of parents are just going to give up there. You know, I mean, and I understand why, right. you know, I mean, we haven't done a, probably a very good job of convincing them the necessity. And when you're working 40 hours a week and your wife's working 40 hours a week, your husband's working 40 hours a week, you don't have time to call 15,000 people, unfortunately. So, yeah. Well, you well know, Jake, I, I even I, asked my wife this morning, like, should I, go back on my my power calling of people like do i do it every day and she's like please for the love of all things just wait for people to call you back because i'm on so many wait lists at both local and state levels where like the chief nurse, nursing officer of our state health department now has my number and will be calling me when there is vaccine near me because they recognize that i want this and they recognize the problem so you know it, it's part of also being an advocate for yourself your your children, the ones that you care for, and, and standing up for yourself saying, we should have this, what do I need to do? Right. You know, and again, you know, I think that that more than ever, you know, pharmacists, other providers can can really be, you know, that advocate and and help, you know, we always talk about help, helping our patients navigate the healthcare system, you know, you know, who to go to where, where to talk about when all that other kind of fun stuff. Uh, this is this is going to be one of those, I think, especially in the, in the next several weeks going to be a crucial role for a lot of people that even if you're a provider who doesn't 
provide the COVID uh, vaccine for children, if you can find out in your health system, or if you're in a large clinic system, or, a, you know, you're a community pharmacist, and you find out, okay, well, you know, I can't vaccinate children under three, or if you're a big chain, our chain has decided not to vaccinate children under five, I mean, whatever, whatever reason why you can't personally do it, you know, finding out where they can, so when patients come to you or call, you have a better answer for them than, oh, no, you know, I mean, you know, we, we, we have to be able to do that. And that's going to mean taking a couple of extra minutes of time to, to, to navigate that through, or we're just going to have, I think, tons of people fall through the cracks. So, well, you know, Jake, I do appreciate your time and I appreciate you sharing your personal story. Um, it is, it's sure. kind of, it's kind of scary. I'm, I'm not going to lie. It's kind of scary to hear that. And again, I don't know, <laughs> it depresses me, but, but, you know, COVID has depressed me in, in, in many ways. So why, why would this be any different? So thank you again, Jake, for, for joining us in the program. So that's, for this week of, of Game Changers. We will see you next week. But until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Thanks for listening then. Claim your CE credit by clicking on the link in the show notes. And check out CE Impact's other education at ceimpact.com where we curate the most important information in pharmacy and medicine to deliver straight to you. Join today to connect your learning to practice.